This podcast may contain discussions about violence, drug use, and it's most definitely going to contain a lot of foul language. I'm sorry, It's a second series. We're back. We're back. Hey, how's it going? How are ya? Uh, <laughs> okay, look, it's been a bit of a longer break than we anticipated. Stuff happens, you know, get it's, off our fucking back. It's been the cuntiest year of all and, you know, shit happens. You can't, you don't know what's happening. No. You know it's around the corner. Consistent garbage fire, so. Um, so thanks for sticking with us and listening again. Yeah. Um, we've got a pretty big episode today. Yeah, we're starting with a bang. And uh, we're going to probably ruin some pretty big heroes of most people. <laughs> yeah. These are heavy hitters, I'd say. Yeah. Should we get into it? Just do it. Let's get fucking started Stop already. Fucking around. Stop this dilly dallying. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to talk about none other than the voice of a generation, the one and the only storyteller himself, Bob Dylan. Bobby D. Bobby D. Okay. Bobby D. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, so he was born Robert Allen Zimmerman on May 24th, 1941, in Duluth, Minnesota. 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 <laughs> and so he was, um, you know, a counterculture icon and wrote a buttload of like anti-war anthems and he's he's one of the most influential musicians in popular culture, bar none, I would say. Easily. Mm. So uh, he seemed to have like a pretty well-rounded childhood. I didn't really find any like sneaky, deep-rooted trauma like hanging about. No. His uh, his father worked as an office manager, but then he contracted polio, oh. sadly, um, and he couldn't really do that job anymore. So the family packed up and they moved to like a smallish mining town uh, called Hibbing, but was still in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also there was like more of the Zimmerman clan, clan sorry, clan lived there. So um, his dad, Abram, could work at the family's like appliance and furniture store there and they just have more support. And the Zimmermans were Jewish and the community in Hibbing was teeny, teeny, tiny. Oh. Yeah, but I'm sure it was closely close-knit. Um, Bob played in some high school bands which weren't particularly good, uh, <laughs> but I think this was like the catalyst to him not really giving a fuck. Like, I don't think the performances were, like, how do you say, like, very well received by the community. Yeah, who cares? Yeah. So, but Bob just kept playing. His biggest influence was definitely Woody Guthrie, but he definitely had a soft spot for one Elvis Presley. Uh-oh. Uh, in fact, Bob saw Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan show and was just blown away. Like, same with uh, John Lennon. Um, I think yeah, most people in the world were. Yeah. <laughs> no, at that time. No, definitely. And I think it's like nutso because that must have been like the, 
like how many future seminal musicians took that Elvis performance as their like gateway drug to yeah, rock and roll? Fuck yeah. It's so interesting. White people anyway. For sure. That's true. And um just a fun side note, uh, Bob's grandfather's name was Zygmunt Zimmerman. That's so cool. A fucking strong name, hey? I really like Zygmunt it. Zygmunt Zimmerman. It's the best. <laughs> Zimmerman. Zimmerman. Uh, so in 1959, Bob headed to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. I don't know what he studied, but it doesn't matter. He dropped out anyways. Um, but before that, he started hanging out in a place near campus called Dinky Town. Dinky Town. It's a great name. I think I could live there in Dinky Town. Yeah. Um, I want to go there. I, I know. <laughs> um, and I think it was kind of like his baptism into folk music and he started introducing himself from that point as Bob Dylan. Um, and there's like these two conflicting stories about that. So one is that it's from Dylan Thomas's, like the poet. Mm-hmm. He's, that's where he took it from. That's that, what I always thought. Yeah, that, I think that's most widely thought. But um, I found a quote from Bob and um, an article, I can't remember where it was from, but it would be in the show notes anyway. But um, he was quoted as saying, Dylan Thomas's poetry is for people that aren't really satisfied in their bed, for people who dig masculine romance. And that actually he also goes on to say that the reason he chose the name was because of the character Matt Dillon from the long-running radio and then television program Gunsmoke. Nah, that's weird. Ah. Anyway. I mean, he can change his mind. Yes. (laughs) I think he's a bit of a liar, frankly. Um, So when he was 19, he goes, he heads to the Big Smoke, goes to New York City, um, and he makes a lot of contacts, makes a lot of friends within the, like, folk scene in New York City, and he starts playing. Hmm? Popping off. Yeah, seriously. I don't know if folk really pops off, though. (laughs) I think it does. (laughs) Um, But he starts playing um, open mic nights at, like, this folk institution called Gertie's Folk City in Greenwich Village. And I, I read that Gertie's, CBGB's and The Cavern are like the greatest venues of all time. Yeah. Apparently, according to some list anyway. Well, whatever. Yeah. You can only still go to one. Also, maybe they were the greatest at one time. Yeah. What about the O2 Arena? <laughs> what about Dicey Riley's in Wollongong? Yeah. <laughs> the boat shed in Manly. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, so, but in 1961, he gets signed to Columbia Records. So he's like, well, he's like 20, he's 21. Yeah, he's a wee babe. Fuck, can you imagine? He's talented. Pie too. He's so cute. Then he released a self-titled debut album, which only sold 5,000 copies. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Then he travelled to the UK for the first time, and I don't think this is the particular trip because it doesn't quite fit chronologically. But apparently Bob Dylan was the first person to introduce the Beatles to weed. Really? Yeah, so the story goes that Bob Dylan um, thought that the Fab Four were already heavy into the drug scene because of their song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Why? Because Bob thought when they sing I Can't Hide, they were singing I Get High. Ah, I thought that. Always. I can't hide. That's what they say. That is so annoying I think that I didn't know that. <laughs> also, shout out to the final episode of our last series. That's season one, episode eight. You. You. 
Uh, anyways, we'll go back to Dylan. So in 1963, Free Will and Bob Dylan was released and this like really cemented him as that like the voice of the anti-war movement. Um, and the cover is an image of Suze Rotolo and she's clutching onto Bob's left arm and he's got his hands in his pockets. Iconic. It is so good. It's so iconic. They're walking down this like very quintessentially New York streets covered in snow. Um, and Rotolo was Bob's like first serious relationship. Then he got involved with the darling of folk, Joan Baez. Mm-hmm. Then power couple, yeah. This was and it was mutually beneficial. Like I think Bob wrote some tunes for Joan, and then Joan was already so incredibly like well established in her career. Yeah, and then so he would sing with Joan and basically just fucking give him a home run to boatloads more fans exposure. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so and then throughout the nineteen sixties, Bob was also pretty like prolific songwriter for other people. He was writing for some of the best, like Sonny and Cher and the birds and the turtles. Really? Yeah, maybe other animals too. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he was terrific and prolific. (laughs) That's what I think. Um, And then so 63, Bob was meant to appear on the Ed Sullivan show. And he was going to sing Talkin' John Birch Paranoid Blues. Ooh. And the song is like a satirical look at the paranoid fear of communism in the United States. But it was a, it was a bit much for Ed. Yeah, I bet. Um, to the producers requested that he edit the lyrics somewhat, but Bob refused. <laughs> it would not Bob. be censored. Good. Yeah, so he later dazed out of there. And does that remind you of anyone? Yeah. Everyone. Jim Morrison, he did yeah, that too. But he didn't later days. He just did whatever he yeah, wanted. Yeah, he just did whatever the he, fuck he, he wanted. He tricked them, which I think is a bit funnier. Yeah, and if you want to listen to that, that's season one, episode six. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, it's, a, but it's, it's a strong move because, like, of course he's signed, he's made two albums, but this, like, that television appearance would have catapulted his fame. Yeah. But Bob's not going to fucking bend over for the man. Good. I love you, Bobby. So then another side of Bob Dylan was recorded in one goddamn night. Isn't that amazing? Really? Yeah. I guess it's it does sound so perfectly like the continuity of that album. That makes sense. It's amazing. It, wow. It's got one of my – it's got It Ain't Me, Babe, which is yeah. one of my faves. I love it. Um – but next, a change. A change is coming. Bob changes his image. He starts wearing sunglasses all the time. Ray-Bans yesterday, today and tomorrow. And he trades his farmer folk chic for rock and roll threads. Yeah, he goes full Roy Orbison. Yeah. And not only that, he releases uh, Bringing It All Back Home, which began to feature electric guitars and some, some of, like, the fans were horrified. <laughs> And at a gig in Manchester, I'm sure you know this, but um, it was a little bit later in 1966, but someone screamed, Judas, from the crowd, which is just <laughs> so fucking funny. Like, relax, bro, it's folk music. Um, wow. 
the first single from the album was Subterranean of Homesick Blues and that's got the film clip that everyone knows. It's a banger. Yeah, it really is a banger. And <laughs> it's, it is. <laughs> so Bob's like, he's in this like city back alley with like a bunch of so like kind of there's like trash and there's a homeless man or presumably a, maybe a, just a man sitting in the alley. Um, but he's got these signs and they've got the lyrics to the song and then he's like throwing them or tossing them onto the floor. Trey Famous. But in that one, um, he's well, he's looking very sexy in his vest. Mm-hmm. It's a tall order for anyone except for my mother. She loves a vest. She fucking pulls it off, yeah. Um, In the second verse, he says the lyrics, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And at the time, there's a lot of unrest and complete disappointment and disassociation with the government and leaders. Um, And so this group of students from the University of Michigan formed an organisation which was originally called The Weathermen and later known as The Weather Underground. And they took their inspiration from that song. Cool. Um, The group's sort of main aim, sorry, this is a bit of a side note, but their main aim was to overthrow the government by whatever means necessary, often meant bombs, yeah. But anyway, everyone should watch. There's a documentary called The Weather Underground. It's fascinating. It's actually one of my favourite documentaries ever. I want to watch it. Yeah. Where did you watch it? When or where? Um, I, well, I worked at a video store for about oh, seven years, so and then it's I quite old. yeah, it's pretty. It must yeah. I wonder if it's on any streaming. I'm sure you could find it, or you could hire it on YouTube. Okay, great. <clears throat> Gotta wait with my whistle. So his next big single is um, like a Rolling Stone, which is a great success. Mm. And then Dylan tours with the band known as. The band. (laughs) Um, And in 1965, he marries Sarah Lowndes and they have four children together. And Bob also adopts Sarah's daughter from her previous marriage. Um, And then Bob does a classic Dylan move and when you think he's going to zig, he zags and he heads to Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. And he starts working on his next album and with a bunch of amazing musicians as well. Nashville Skyline? Blonde on Blonde. Oh, then that, that's after. No. Oh. oh. Maybe not. Fuck, I don't know. <sighs> Honestly, like I kind of started skipping some of his albums. But um, he's um, been like consistently touring for like a, quite a while now and he's pushing through with the help of our old friend and trader, Mr Speed. Mm. Um, but he's kind of <laughs> like reaching his limits and like you can see it, like he's tired and so he heads homeward to Woodstock, New York um, um, soon after, still in 1966, Bob crashes his Triumph motorcycle and this is a really big event um, for him and there's a lot of mystery surrounding it and surrounding the accident because no ambulance was called uh, whether or not there was an actual crash or Bob just came off the bike, also unknown. Just some like people say it over. Yeah, some people say he was in a vegetative state oh. afterwards. Um, like a, I guess so like secretive. A coma. Yeah, Bob. and other people think this was just an ex- excuse excuse to like escape all the pressure that was. It was just like I need mounting. A break. Yeah, um, and another account says 
that Sarah drove him. Oh, well, she was allegedly like behind him and he was on his motorbike. That's a bit weird though, isn't it? No. Nah. He was like, I want to ride my bike. And she was like, oh, we need to go and get groceries. Just come with me in the car. <laughs> and then he was like, well, I just really feel like riding my bike. And yeah. she was like, all right, I'll drive. I mean, you that's. On the, on the fucking bike. That's a sign of wealth, right? You don't even worry about the price of petrol. <laughs> yeah. Let's just run all the vehicles we've got <laughs> to the, go to the shops. Um, but apparently she was driving behind him. He came off and then she got him into the car somehow. I mean, she's not a, she doesn't look like a particularly like, I don't know. No. She, I don't know how much she bench presses, but I wouldn't say a lot. But um they go to the family doctor's house and then the doctor deduced that Bob had broken his back and multiple vertebrae um, in Whoa. his neck. Uh, and then he stayed there to recuperate uh, at the doctor's, doctor's house. house. <laughs> yeah, because by this point I think there was like two, maybe there was three young children living in his and Sarah's home. So he's like, I'm too fancy for a hospital. Maybe, yeah. I mean, he maybe just needed a break from screaming children. <laughs> Sucked in, Sarah. <laughs> Back you go. Um, but then after this, he became really reclusive for like eight years. So wow. something happened. Uh, eventually, he would reemerge like a phoenix. Uh, and he wrote some new songs for other artists, including, I didn't know he wrote this, Manfred Mann's Quinn the Eskimo, hmm. a.k.a., you know, Mighty Quinn. I don't know if I know it. I'm just, we're just going to pause for a second. I'm going to sing it and we're going to cut it out. Okay. Okay, I sung it. She knows the song now. (laughs) Okay, so then his idol, Woody Guthrie, died and Bob plays his first concert as a tribute show at Carnegie Hall with his old mates, the band known as The Band. And then um, (laughs) he writes another album and also writes the song Lady Lay, intended to be on the soundtrack of Midnight Cowboy. But as Bob is one to do, he was too late. And he then released Self Portrait, which was aggressively hated amongst critics. Mm. It was hardcore. And then he turned up to his old friend and total babe, George Harrison's charity gig concert for Bangladesh in 1971. And after that, he released his most covered song, Knockin' on Heaven's Door, and soon returned to touring. And then came the song Hurricane from the album Desire. And the My epic- favourite. Is that your favourite? It's great. It's My favourite album. It is so good. Every fucking song is perfection. I mean, that's... An- that that and the album starts with Hurricane, doesn't it? That's yeah. the first song, which is, like, intense because it goes for, like, eight minutes. Like. <laughs> yep. Bold move. <laughs> so it, the song tells the story of rumoured Hurricane Carter, who um, he's a boxer who was wrongly convicted and was serving a life sentence at the time, which was eventually overturned. Yes. Because the justice system sucks. Uh, so Bob and Sarah divorce at that point. And then he finds Jesus under the bed and bing, bang, bosh. He's an ev- um, evangelical Christian. Whoa. Yeah. Praise me. Did I didn't know that. Yeah. Because obviously he's Jewish. Yeah. But yeah, then he 
Some of these fans, like, really didn't take kindly to this. Well, I don't take kindly to that at all. No. And I listened to this very informative podcast, which I got loads of information from. It's called A Bob Dylan Premer. But it, Primer. Well, we'd say Primer, but he calls it a Premer. That is fucked. Is that American? I hope not. I hope that guy's just a dumb dumb. I was like, why is he Prima. saying it like that? And then I thought it must be P R I double M E R, and I just didn't know a word, which very rarely happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the host, um, Michael Hacker, talks about going to one of his concerts around his like Jesus point and how bizarre the crowd was and like these mix of people and um so goddies were coming because they were like I actually wrote that yeah because I (laughs) no I said and how they had all these goddy like oh no they had like a big goddy introduction whoa like whoa whoa. and then but yeah people wearing like Jesus saved me t-shirts or like look to him for love or I don't know what what a goddies say Who's making this merch also? <laughs> if any um, religious people are listening, you can't just take those great ideas for Jesus T-shirts that I just no, came up with. They're for us. <laughs> Side hustle. Um, yeah, so apparently it all started with this very, very like religious kind of singing, but it wasn't Dylan. It was like the support act or something. And then they thought like, okay, Dylan's going to come on. Oh, actually, no, and I think Dylan might have been singing with them, but it wasn't his songs. Like it wasn't it the was reason they... God songs. Yeah, they were God songs and they were like <laughs> hymns. Oh. Mm. But so essentially like he just like preached at them and it's like no wonder people say play the hits. Like you don't buy... It's yeah. just, I would be so pissed off. I and w- would be fuming. Surely those tickets, I mean, they would have been cheaper then, but imagine... Now, like he must be one of the most expensive musicians to see. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the late like 1970s and 80s, Dylan's pretty consistently like touring um, and releasing albums. And I feel like, like I said before, like a bit of a broken record because every fucking second sentence I say, he released blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> he made like 39 studio albums. Right. And there's loads of other stuff. Like he's the person in that um, Prima Prima thing. They said like how generous Dylan has been with all of his content, like loads of behind the scenes stuff and director cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. Uh, so he was very prolific. Mm. But throughout the 80s, he also joined the supergroup, the Travelling Wilburys. Yeah. But I think it was pretty tricky because Dylan's touring schedule slash he was like really unreliable, unavailable mm. to fulfill the commitments to the band. Oh, I mean, fair enough. Does Yeah. They all probably were a bit. Yeah. I think he was particularly unreliable. Yeah. But I, 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 I couldn't find this anywhere, but I might have been in that Scorsese documentary where George Harrison was like, you just never know with him, basically. Essentially it was like, you just never know whether and then he'll just appear. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so George Harrison and Bob Dylan also seemed to have a very beautiful friendship and they, like, loved each other a lot. And I found this quote from George, which I thought was so nice. It said, Dylan is so brilliant. To me, he makes William Shakespeare look like Billy Joel. It's true. <laughs> I mean, I love BJ. There's a place for BJ in my heart. No. Tell. No, no. <laughs> um, so he played a bunch of charity gigs. They were all the rage mm. in the 1980s. He played Live Aid, 
We'll get to that. And then he um, and he sung "Blowing in the Wind," accompanied by oh, your favorite goblin face friend, Ronnie Wood. Ew, I hate him. <laughs> and also Keith Richards. And it's so funny because Dylan is sweating as much as a drug mule at an airport. He is like, and I get, I understand that. Like, I get some sweat, but he is dripping. <laughs> and then like Keith appears very wasted. And, like, really, he's really, like, getting into it. (laughs) And I swear at one point, like, Bob looks at Ronnie and he kind of does an eye roll, which is, like, (laughs) directly on camera. And they're, okay, so they're all, just to paint a picture, there's three of them. They're right next to each other. They're all wearing white on the top. They're all wearing white tops. I think Dylan's wearing, like, that Seinfeld kind of, like, Crepe. Um, yeah. Or like pirate shirt. <laughs> the pirate shirt. But like less fun plan. And they're all playing acoustic guitars, which is just not so necessary. It's too much. But also like I, I wish I'd watch it later. But it's brilliant because they're all kind of standing quite close and they're all dancing to their own tune, like they're all <laughs> totally just like getting into their old thing and Keith Richards like, yeah, and then like Ronnie's just like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And then Bob's just like, this is mine, this is my stage. Like, But they're all moving like totally out of sync. I want to say that. So Bob tries his hand at rap for a moment, but was no. Bob. Yeah. Well, some people say that Bob Dylan was the first ever rapper. <laughs> well, um, maybe like. Johnny's in the basement. Exactly. The tone, I mean, the the um, the timing. I'm just saying that in the wrong melody and I'm really embarrassed. No, you didn't. I got it. Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, So he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Bruce Springsteen in 1990. Oh, sorry, 1988. Bruce. It was a great year. Uh, And not that long after, he received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award from one Jack Nicholson. Shout out to season one, episode three. (laughs) (laughs) It's all connected. Um, And he also, he introduced those three clowns at the Live Age Shamozzle as well. (laughs) Um, And in his acceptance speech, he said this thing about his father and he was like, my daddy once said to me, he said, son, it is possible for you to become so defiled in this world that your own mother and father will abandon you. If that happens, God will believe in your ability to mend your own ways. What the fucking, what's the point? I don't know. But also... It wasn't his daddy who said that. It was like an intellectual rabbi named Samson <laughs> Raphael Hirsch. So I don't know if he did it on like purpose and he didn't well, maybe care. His dad told him that. Maybe. Bullshit. His dad ripped it from <laughs> Rabbi Samson. <laughs> but or maybe he's just a fucking fibber. I don't know. So around this time, uh, <laughs> his drinking allegedly became a problem, but he denies it. But he probably would like who me. Not me, I'm Bob Dylan. Yeah, I'm just going to take a swig of this. So then in 1997, while recording Time Out of Mind, Mm -hmm. Dylan was rushed to hospital with a heart infection that could have killed him. Oh, no. But he didn't die. No, he's all right. He had to cancel his European tour, though. But he did go and he played for the Popey, John Paul II, not long after. Because he loves God so much. Fucking loves God. And in that same year, he received the Kennedy Center honors from Bill Clinton, who was the prez at the time. Um, He won an Oscar in 2000. 
He's fuck it, he's won everything. Like, all right, honestly, he's won. He's basically won everything. He also got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama. Cool. And then in 2016, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he was the first musician to receive this award. He's the coolest. Well, and then, oh, Dylan sold his Greenwich Village recording studio in 2013. And do you know what the monthly rent for this apartment is? No. So according to a 2017, so it's more been, or maybe it'll be cheaper now, um, <laughs> New York Post article, it's 12,500 US dollar dues a month. That's dumb. Just buy a house if, if you've you got that much. That. What? <laughs> then just keep rent for like... A little while. That's so dumb. It's so weird. I don't understand that. Anyway, so in 2018, uh, Bob was one of a cohort of artists who performed on an album called Universal Love, Wedding Songs Reimagined. And this album um, just basically said, fuck you to gendered pronouns. And they like redid all these songs. Cool. Yeah, it was good. Um, Bob also has a whiskey brand called Heaven's Door Spirits. Like so many celebrities have their like fingers mm. in alcohol pies. I get it. We should make an alcohol pie. Can we? Sure. Um, <laughs> he's also made and featured in a few films as well. Haven't really got into that. Oh. His vocals have always been criticised like yeah. a lot. Everyone's like, he's a bad singer. I think he's pretty whiny at times. <laughs> yeah. But I also really, you know, with... Not everyone can be Beyonce. No. <laughs> but I, I, I do like his voice. I think it's really unique. I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's Bob Dylan. It's no one else. Anyway, yeah. um, I just explained what unique meant in a sentence. <laughs> uh, he's like, also, he's like the pioneer of the seven plus minute song. Like some yeah. of you might have thought it was Led Zeppelin. No? Fucking Bobby do. Yeah, he did it. Yeah. And he kills it. He does kill it. Seriously, he's one of the goddamn greats. He's 105 and he's still touring. I'm just kidding. He's actually 79, but he's actually, he is still touring. <laughs> Maybe not at this moment. But also, like, there's loads more to say. You get the picture. It's fucking yeah. great. So tell us how, well, tell us why you love Blind Boy Grunt. Blind Boy Grunt? <laughs> Apparently one of his nicknames. Well, I don't like that nickname. Fair enough. I like Bobby D. <laughs> Bobby D. <laughs> um, so I first came to know him. Obviously, my dad, Mr. Music, loved him, mm. but I never was that interested until I think I was 14 and I had this amazing English teacher called Mr. Whalen. He was so fucking cool. I don't know what he was doing teaching at Katoomba High School, but he t- taught us. Bob Dylan songs in an mm. English class. He was so cool that I immediately was like, okay, I guess Bob Dylan's cool then, if Mr. Yeah. Whalen says so. Then, now this is a bit personal and weird, I got this amazing boyfriend, like my first proper boyfriend, mm. and his mother <laughs> had sued maybe the Telegraph or something in Sydney because she because they she did an interview or they falsely had a headline that was like I was Bob Dylan's sex slave. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and she had like boned him. 
cool. Her name, sorry, I don't know. <laughs> her name was Amelia Gypsy Fire. I'm sorry. Yes, Gypsy Fire. Wow. And poor Adam. <laughs> oh my God. Like going over to the house, there were like naked pictures of her on the wall. Love she, it. Which was, must have been so embarrassing. Yeah. For a like teenage boy. <laughs> and she asked me what my star sign was. Yeah. And when I told her that I was a Scorpio, she instantly hated me because oh. Sarah. Bob's Sarah Lowndes was a Scorpio. And it was this whole thing. It, it just was so weird. I thought you were going to say you guys boned to like a Bob Dylan song no, we in did that house. Not. <laughs> I think for him that would have been very unsexy. <laughs> but like that was just such a weird thing that I was. That is weird. Vaguely involved in. But she was crazy. And, well, yeah, she's fucking and, and fun. Like she was also fun when she didn't hate me. Um, also, we were just teenagers. Whatever, that's not that interesting. It but. is. I also think that the, how irrational it is to to just like change the way you treat someone based on when they were born is pretty ludicrous. It's, it is mental. I could, I'd so. never had an adult ask me what star sign I was before. <laughs> Um, but, of course, uh, went on to live my life with lots of Bob Dylan in it because he's so good. And I think Desire's been one of my favourite records probably since I was about 18. I listen to it all the time, never get sick of it. Um, I even t- toyed with the idea of, like, doing a set of live shows where all I sang were Bob Dylan covers. <laughs> Who would want to hear that? I would. <laughs> I'd anyway, every night. I just love him. I just fucking, I love him. He's the cutest little face and <laughs> I, I just love him. Fair enough. One of my favourite memes is that um, gif of Bob Dylan in oh, yeah. the We Are The World clip. I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> we'll get back to that. It's so good. Um, if you guys out there don't know that, please look up Bob Dylan meme. Bob Dylan meme. All right. Meme. That's it. Shall I give it a go? I mean, try and ruin I don't, him. Do I'm, your I'll worst. try, but like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about this one. But um, so mentioned uh, one of Bob's biggest influences was Woody Guthrie, and he loved him so much, so much so that he, he kind of mimicked everything he did, including the ticks that Woody had, which were a result of a neurological disease, oh. Huntington Chorea, which. Also, eventually killed Guthrie. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah, so that's a bit dumb, but that's kind of a useful indiscretion. But maybe he didn't even realize. Maybe. maybe he was just like, this is how you be a cool guy. Mm. Uh, he generally treated the women in his life pretty poorly. Classic. I can see Emma's eyes just rolled so far in the classic back of man, head. but you know, what else? Uh, he, he just like, he consistently started relationships without finishing the previous ones. So, um, Ugh. I guess you could call that cheating if you will. Yeah, that's gross. Um, so he's with Suze Rotolo, who I mentioned, um, and he'd ask her to marry him, but then he just like fucked off and went on tour with Joan Baez. And so I mentioned Joan before, like 
she was a big help to Bob in widening his fan base. But when they were touring England, Joan hadn't actually performed there before. Um, and Bob was meant to introduce her, bring her out on stage, um, and then they were going to sing together at these gigs. But he just never brought her on the stage. <gasps> what a butt face. He said, she didn't fit into my music. Ooh. It wouldn't have added to me and it would have been misleading to the audience. Sorry, that wasn't a question. I just said it like that because it's like I don't really understand that. <laughs> um, so uh, Joan said that it was a big slap in the face and on that same tour, um, Bob went to hospital with a sore tummy and then when Joan, <laughs> sorry, when Joan went to his room to visit Sarah Lowndes, the future Mrs Dillon was leaving as she arrived and that's when Joan, Ooh. yeah, Joan said... Um, and that's how I found out there was a Sarah. And she also said that the tour was the most demoralising experience in my life. Oh. Yeah. I really do feel like he'd obviously reached this kind of point in success. And Just he went, was, I don't need you anymore. Yeah. That's, it really does yeah. seem like that. Um, dog act. Yeah. So many years later, Sarah, the mother of his four children, came down to the kitchen in their Malibu family home and Bob was sitting with a woman who had obviously slept over and was now eating breakfast with their children. Ew, what the fuck? Yeah, and I think that was it for Sarah. What she a was dick done. face. Oi, oi, oi. So Bob's second marriage to Carolyn Dennis was... From 1986 to 1982, and she was a backup singer for him. And they had a daughter together, and their whole relationship was secret until it was discovered and shared by Dylan's biographer. Then, like, even like years after they'd already divorced. So, no one even knew through their whole relationship. Even together. No. Married with the child. No. So secrety. But I think that the people, the, the media definitely and articles definitely show that to be like his secret daughter he wants no one to know about. But um, <laughs> Carolyn is also like, no, we just never, we never wanted her to have, a, you know. Be in the public eye. Exactly. We wanted to protect her and let her have a normal life. And they both say that. Too late now. Everyone knows who you are. Um, but good try. Yeah. <laughs> good try. A for effort. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there was another woman named Ruth Tyrangeal. Oh, that could be wrong. But mm. that's how I think. And she was declared to be Dylan's common-law wife as the two had had a relationship between 1974 and 1991, as, which overlapped all of his... Marriages and relationships. Whoa. Uh, well, not all of his relationships, but so Ruth, she receives like alimony from Dylan. Whoa. Because of that. And then there was also Susan. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Because it's his common law wife because of the extent of their, I guess. Because they would. To, whoa. Yeah, like marriages and. I know. Fuck. Um. Yeah, so then they, oh, there was also Susan Ross who said Dylan was an alcoholic and a useless lover. Burn. <laughs> uh, what, do you have a little dick too? <laughs> <laughs> and there have been like many, many women and allegedly there's other children but none of that's substantiated but Susan Ross is pretty sure of those things. <laughs> um, speaking of misogyny... 
He also wrote this song called Is Your Love in Vain from the album Street Legal. And one of the lyrics was, can you cook and sew, make flowers grow? And uh, that received a bit of backlash. Just Yeah, gross. Um, but I think I think a lot of his songs are a bit quite sexist. Just Like a Woman is fucking, it's patronising. I think yeah. it's pretty insulting, it's really. It's not my favourite. No. Fuck off. Um, anyway. <laughs> there was this... <laughs> There was this fellow, his name is Alan Jules Weberman, right? And he, he was obsessed with Bob Dylan. In fact, he like he co- coined the term Dylanology um, and he also invented the term Garbology. And this was because he spent more than a decade sifting through Bob Dylan's garbage. That's Garbology. What? I know. That's scary. I think it's so funny. Can you imagine? I know it's not funny, but I just find it really funny. It is funny. Just like. It's it's funny for us, but I would be imagine that. Yeah, well, I think um, eventually. Oh my god! This got on Dylan's nerves. Yeah, a fair bit, um, and it all came to a bit of a head when Bob assaulted AJ on Elizabeth Street in Lower Manhattan. Yeah, eventually, it's like fuck off, dude. Oh, man, but you should look. He's a real character, this AJ Weberman. Anyway, um. An interview with Rolling Stone magazine Bob did in 2012. He was speaking about racism um, and he compared Croatian people to Nazis in the Ku Klux Klan. That was not great. So he said, if you got a slave master or clan, he speaks of the Ku Klux one, that's what he means, Mm. um, in your blood, blacks can sense that. That stuff lingers to this day, just like Jews can sense Nazi blood and Serbs can sense Croatian blood. Well, all of that was pretty fucking bad. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I just think, I don't know. I'm not saying that. Well, because he he said it in France as well and, and, and they have very hefty penalties and consequences for any kind of bullshit racist chat. Like they just don't have it. Um, so French authorities file charges against Bobby and he was actually subsequently charged with oh. incitement to hatred. Yeah. Well, be nice if other countries had laws like that. Yeah. I don't know. I guess like just the sentence itself, I guess we've spoken about this before, but the idea of like the power of language and just being having an awareness. Like I would never speak like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I... Yeah, I wouldn't even say Jews, really, like, no. which is in that quote. But also he was born Jewish. Yeah. So anyway, complex. Um, so Dylan, like I said, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2016 and he was honoured for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. And it took him over two weeks to acknowledge or even respond to this huge <laughs> honour. He didn't, he, he also. I remember that. Yeah, he didn't go to the ceremony. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I just, kind of think that's pretty cool. He doesn't go he to accept really it. really doesn't give a fuck. No. But that was the ceremony where his mate Patty Smith went and she sang um, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And she stopped the orchestra because she messed up the lyrics mm-hmm. and it was just really uncomfortable. And yeah. she even said, like, you know, I knew that I'd failed. Or she said something oh, about failure and you're Patty. just like, 
No. Oh. I'm, that, yeah, that was gut-wrenching to watch. But also in order to receive the more than, it's like $900,000, so it would be more than a million Australian dollars in prize money, which I'm sure Bob Dylan really needs. But to get that, the recipient must deliver a lecture within six months of receiving the award. And Bob just snuck in just on the on June 4th and um, he did his lecture. You can listen to it online. I did. It was pretty good. But after I listened to it, then I found out that this journalist named Andrea Pizza, who wrote an article for Slate, she actually uncovered 20 very, very, very remarkably similar sentences in Bob's lecture to that of the Sparknote Century for Moby Dick. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. That's 20. Fucking intense. He plagiarized from Spark Notes. <laughs> but it's not the first instant, instance what are you, of. 14? I know. I used to do it all the time. I think he's a writer, though. It's so weird. I know. It is weird. Did he just run out of time? Like, a, like, like when you are 14 and you're like, oh my God, it's you tomorrow. And then um, you'll never know. The, the internet's notes. huge. <laughs> I seriously used to think that. I'd be like, the internet's so big, they'll never find this. It's like the first thing when you Google something, obviously. Yeah, it's using Wikipedia. Uh, they'll, they'll never figure it out. Um, it's like but, me on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that um, he's been referred to as a magpie quite frequently throughout his career, which is a nice little euphemism for blatant plagiarism. And in 2010, Joni Mitchell told the Los Angeles Times that Bob is not authentic at all. He's a plagiarist and his name and voice are fake. Everything about Bob (laughs) is a deception. Oh. Fighting words, Joni. Shit. Yeah. Um. He definitely has sold out, I would say. Um, Who cares? Make that money. Okay. But he was in this ad for Chrysler, which I watched. I think it was – Whoa, really? Yeah, he's done ads for Victoria's Secret. What? Yeah. He's a total sellout. Well, you know, maybe he likes I don't, ladies but why in do you need- and nice cars. Okay. So, let, well, let me tell you about this ad. He's so, not promoting Donald Trump or anything. That, mm-hmm. that would be selling out. That's true. Yeah. So, but this ad, it, watch it if you'd like a little cringe, if you're feeling <laughs> like you want that in your life. It's pretty tricky to watch. That's how bad it is. Um, and the final line of this, like, incredibly way too long ad, like, it must be one of those Super Bowl ones. Mm-hmm. But um, he said, talking about the cars, it's made from the one thing you can't import from anywhere else. American pride. What? <laughs> and then he says, so let Germany brew your beer. Let Switzerland make your watch. Let Asia, sorry, Asia, we're just lumping you all in there. Uh, let Asia assemble your phone. And then he breaks down the fourth wall and he looks straight at the camera and he says, we will build your car. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's so dumb. It's the worst. It's just, but it's so, it's so bad. Like, who wrote that? Also, Germany make better cars than America. You fucking ruined Detroit's fucked. I'm a little stuck on the Victoria's Secret thing, though. Yeah. That, I, did you see that ad? No, I haven't. Oh, did I watch it? I, no, I don't think but I who did. who in marketing would have said, you know, it goes with <laughs> women's underwear, Bob Dylan? I know. It's not. 
sexy music. He fucking loves endorsing a product for a bit of coin. It's really weird. I agree. Who was who was in that brainstorming meeting? Yikes. Um, in two th- this is just funny. In two thousand and nine, Bob was mistaken for a homeless man and he was arrested in New Jersey. <laughs> he often wears hoodies, like to remain inconspicuous, a bit under the radar, but maybe maybe that was a little too under the radar. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you have to have more happening than being in a hoodie. Well, he was in a hoodie and it was, <laughs> you, you've got to imagine the scene because it was heavily raining. He's like this soggy old hooded man. <laughs> and he just like went into the front yard of this people's house. I don't know why he was going there. And then they called the police. And then the officer who arrived was 24 and had no idea who he was. Also, like, wow. Yeah. Okay, that's weird. You should take a leaf out of Bill Nye's book and wear nice blue suits. <laughs> But, yeah, I just thought that was funny. And then he was just like, I'm Bob Dylan. Um, but, yeah, and then I was just going to. like, sure you are, old man. I know. It's like the guy who the, the guy who people think is Jim Morrison, who's like, like that's not Jim Morrison. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And Emma mentioned this before, but you just. His face in the Live Aid recording, it's the best. If you haven't seen the video of Bob Dylan in the recording of We Are The World, go and watch it now, sort your life out. We'll wait here until you get back, but it is priceless. It's so good. Also, Geldof from that called him a crass, stupid narcissist after he said, I think it was like at the concert, he said that some of the Live Aid money should be going to American farmers, which is obviously not the premise of that particular one. if you want to give money to the farmers, Bob, put your own fucking concert on. Well, then, actually, it's funny you say that because what's uh, Willie Nelson actually did after that, so Willie did it. Thanks, Willie. That's kind of all I got, though, really. What do you think? Um, I'm not not affected. By any of it? No. Well, there you go. (laughs) I thought that he... Some of it was just fun. I mean, I wasn't going to... I'm sure that him being arrested because people thought he was homeless. I didn't think that was going to change your mind. But, like, I mean, his treatment of his wife's not great. Mm. And... (laughs) What about about the Sparks notes? I don't know if I... I kind of get it. (laughs) (laughs) He won a million dollars. Why are they giving people like him a million dollars anyway? Because he wins the award. But, but did he enter? No. Well, you don't enter. Exactly. <laughs> he didn't ask for it. The money? Yeah. Yeah, but he didn't give it back. Well, of course. You're going to take it. <sighs> Look, I'm sorry. I'm sticking by Bob here. That's okay. It's fine. Bob, 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 Bob. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that you're not that into him because as we were talking and researching, you constantly were telling me how boring he is. I just haven't really got into him. Yeah, well, I mean, at times there were moments, but I don't know. I just think he's so, like, <laughs> I don't, he's quite whiny and he's a bit fucking lazy. Like the fact that he took. Same. <laughs> <laughs> well, you two have fun. Why don't you just go get married? Uh, all right. We're going to have a little break and we'll be right back with 
Elvis Presley. Dun, dun, dun. I'm sorry, sucks. Really sucks, like. Really sucks, like. I'm sorry. All right, mates, we're back. Um, and I'm going to do my very best to ruin Elvis Aaron Presley. Give it your worst, mate. All right. Seems that I completely failed. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Elvis was born January 8th, 1935 in Tupelo, Mississippi in a very small two-room shotgun house that his father Vernon had built specifically for his birth. His mother Gladys had been pregnant with twins, but Elvis's identical brother Jesse was horrifically stillborn. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. You didn't? No. Um, Shotgun houses, if you don't know, were basically for the poorest of the poor, um, and they were really simple, one, maybe two room, just square shacks. And they lived in that house for some years with Vernon aimlessly slacking off in one job or another. They relied on government assistance more often than not. Then in 1938, they lost the house after Vernon was arrested and jailed briefly for altering a check. Mm. I think he was just a real lazy, good for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Piece Vernon. of shit. Yeah. So Gladys and Elvis uh, moved in with relatives and then after Vernon was released, they moved into what was a predominantly black neighbourhood. In Tupelo? Yeah, with all the other po- povos, you know. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> but that's the South, I guess, right? Yep. Um, Sure is. (laughs) The family attended church and that's where Elvis discovered gospel music Mm. and blues and country and gospel was all around in the black communities he grew up in there. Um, And he learned the art of performance by watching the weird Pentecostal preachers singing and walking and whooping and hollering hollering all over the stage. Is that a stage in a church? I mean, look. I think it is to them. They I call think it in, a stage. I mean, I don't know what else. An altar, but it's like a fucking stage. Yeah, I in, guess the, in that situation, it is. Any goddies or ex goddies, let me know. <laughs> Does that have a special name? Anyway, yeah. um, at the age of ten, little Elvis entered a talent show. Cute, singing "Old Ship," which I looked up and is a very cute old song. And he was dressed as a cowboy. Oh, yeah. So cute. Um, Have you ever pictures of him? Nah, like, I didn't see any of that. Oh, my God. I want to see baby yours. Maybe there are some. We should I love look. baby photos of anyone. He was very cute as a young man, but I didn't see any very, oh, yeah. very little boy ones. Might not have been able to afford it, really, because yeah. that would have been an expensive thing to have. Totally. A few weeks after that, he got his first guitar. Mm-hmm. 
The family um, moved to Memphis when Elvis was 13 and it was a totally different world from Tupelo. There was money here, it was diverse and although not integrated yet, there were still better opportunities for black people. So also there were better opportunities for the Pavo Presleys. They had a much bigger place to live and Elvis had the freedom to go out, discover music in the city, especially on Beale Street where there were black music clubs that Elvis started going to very regularly. Great place. Elvis was looking to record Um, And he said that he wanted to make a record for his mother's birthday present, but others say that there were heaps cheaper places to record and he chose Sun Studios specifically because he wanted to be discovered by the wonderful Sam Phillips. Phillips had been looking for a white boy to do black music, which Mm. is genius. He knew that black music was where it was at. Um, And Sam got a hold of a demo that he thought might work for Elvis Um, And it didn't work, but Sam still saw something in him and put him and a small band together with Scotty Moore and Bill Black in a sort of jam demo session just to see what happened. Um, And nothing much of note was happening at all. And they were about to call it quits and go home. And it was real late. Then Elvis began doing a rendition of Arthur Crudup's That's All Right. Okay. And he was jumping around like a dickhead and having fun and Sam recorded it and knew that in that he had found what he was looking for. And it's a bloody good version of that song. Yeah. Um, And the song got a ton of airplay. It was a hit instantly in the South. Um, The trio played a bunch of shows, a grueling tour where Elvis really figured out how to perform. His famous leg twitch began out of nervousness Mm. but he could see that the crowd loved it and he gave the people what they wanted Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I kind of get that sexy leg twitch thing it is sexy as a teenager me and some mates used to watch this video of the moody blues at the isle of white doing nights in white satin and we watched it over and over (laughs) swooning our heads off over like this little leg twitch that justin hayward did like creaming our little teen (laughs) jeans and i know that makes me sound like i'm a 60 year old woman but no. We were into that song in the 90s, That's right? so funny that you, because I was into that song as well, but I would just, like, listen to it in a real moody <laughs> teen way and I'd be like, um. Because I love you. But, like, uh, letters I've written never meaning to send. <laughs> it's like I have so much to say, but I just, I can't share it with you. It's so deep. It's so deep. In 1955, Colonel Tom Parker took Mm. over management of Elvis. He was a promoter. When was that? 19 what? Uh, 1955. Okay, right. And once he signed Elvis, he dropped all his other artists. Wow. He really believed in the potential of Elvis. He managed to get him out of his contract at Sun and get Elvis into a major label. Parker got Elvis on a bunch of TV shows to promote his album and, mate, he takes off. Yeah. Most of the songs on the album were covers of black artists. And honestly, although this is literally the epitome of cultural appropriation, yeah. <laughs> I don't see this as the same kind of ingenuous bullshit that we often see today. Yeah. Um, he learned black music from the source. 
I mean, I think he invented pop. He, I don't think that in an in a new way. Yeah, he didn't invent rock and roll. Rock and roll already existed within the black community, um, but he mixed rock and roll, rhythm and blues, white country music, and he did create a sound. But it wasn't rock and roll anyway. More mm. on that later. Interesting. His TV appearances created a storm of controversy. He was like the devil. And women went fucking mad for it, and it freaked the fuck out of the establishment. They called him Elvis the Pelvis. Elvis the Pelvis. <laughs> um, also, it was the beginning of the civil rights movement where all the whites were most afraid uh, of, like, race mixing. Yeah, integration was frightening. And he was, like, literally... Wamp, wamp musically race mixing. Yeah. Um, And in turn, the young people at the time were mixing cultures and it scared the shit out of the boring old racists. After a show in La Crosse, Wisconsin, an urgent message on the letterhead of the local Catholic diocese newspaper was sent to FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. Worst. He's responsible (laughs) for a lot, that one. (laughs) And it warned that, quote, Presley is a definite danger to the security of the United States. His actions and motions were such as to rouse the sexual passions of teenage youth. After the show, more than 1,000 teenagers tried to gang into Presley's room at the auditorium. Mm -hmm. Indications of the harm Presley did just in lacrosse were the two high school girls whose abdomen and thigh had Presley's autograph. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, I don't know. Ruined. How, <laughs> how, like, the Archdiocese finds out about. So weird, isn't it? Yeah. Don't you have, like, fuck it out. But is this high on the agenda? Everyone's clutching their pearls. Oof. Apart from music... Elvis and the Colonel also had their sights on making Elvis a movie star. Oh, dear. And then the Colonel got him a Paramount contract and Elvis really thought he was going to be a serious actor. He didn't think he was going to sing in the movies. But, you know, that's what the people wanted. At first he was taken very seriously. His role in King Creole was supposed to go to James Dean. Really? Dean died. Um, And it was directed by... Michael Curtis, who directed Casablanca. Like, it was a real movie. And actually, his first few movies are pretty great, but fuck, do they get bad. So bad. They used to play them on, like, I think Channel 9 on a Saturday. Me and my mum watched them all the time. I I used to watch them too, and I used to be like, what is happening here? (laughs) So bad. I know because it's like not they, a lot of them. It's like it's not quite a musical, but for whatever reason, then song breaks out because it's like give us what you got, Elvis. Yeah. Anyway, it's very of the time, like quite 50s, torturous, early sixties. So yeah. weird. Um, in 1958, after King Creole came out, Elvis was drafted. Mm. Even though the USA was not at war, men could still be drafted to serve in the army, which is so weird and ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Just before he left for Germany for two years, he was supposed to go for, his dear mummy Gladys died and he was understandably a devo. 
the two were extremely, even kind of creepily close. Yeah. And they talked, they talked like baby talk to each other. That's that's a huge red flag, anyone out there who's hearing that, like with a partner or boyfriend, girlfriend, (laughs) person that they're intimate with. Please don't ever do that. Don't. Um, But the army didn't give a fuck about that and he was off to Germany. Oh. Yeah. During this time he discovered uppers. Yeah. He was using pills to stay up on watch duty and it was cold too, so I guess it helped with that. And Germany was also where Elvis met a 14-year-old Priscilla Ann Bolu. I don't know how to say her maiden name. Bolu? Bailu? Look. I know who you're talking about. Do you know who I'm fucking talking about? Stop (laughs) harassing me. Yeah, get off her back. Apparently, uh, in that first meeting, he asked her how old she was. And when she told him, he said... Oh, you're just a baby. Ah! And then despite her being a baby, he still decides to date and then marry her. But more on that later. (laughs) I knew that one was coming. When he came home from the army, rock and roll was kind of over from the way that it was before he left. Anyway, um, it was still there, but it was different now. Yeah. And Parker wanted to cash in as much as he could, as was his style. And since his music was a bit out of fashion, he pushed Elvis more into the movies. I guess he figured why give it away for free on the radio when you could make people pay to see him in the cinema. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, for the next eight years, the Colonel had Elvis making shitty movie after shitty movie. It was nonstop. At first, Elvis had insisted on not making any more corny Elvis music movies and to aim higher um, and get real serious roles. Yeah. Um, And he did make two films like that, but they were complete and utter flops. So proving the Colonel's point, he had to go back to the formula. Yeah. The soundtrack albums were super lame, but they sold. And uh, And that was all that the Colonel cared about. Parker owned the publishing as well for all the songs Mm. and poor old Ellie had no control at all. Yeah. The Colonel didn't want to waste time on touring his real music when the movies put him in front of millions of people around the world, you know. He had contract after contract with like every single movie company. When one was up, they'd move to another one. When that one was up, they moved to another one. They just kept doing them. Mm-hmm. He made three movies a year and they all had soundtracks. It's really quite sad. Yeah. Like it ruined his music career and his reputation as a real musician and any kind of creator. He was pissed off, he was bored, and Priscilla said he would finish a movie and just be so depressed about going on to yet another shit movie. Mm. Um, and also, did you know that Elvis didn't write a single song. Yeah, I did know that. How wild is that? I know. I remember when I found that out and I was just like, what? It's so weird. He's the king of rock and roll. It's, I mean, I know there's a difference between like being a performer and being, you know, a creator. I get that. And yeah. not everyone can be both. 
No, but not a single song and being in that industry for that length of time. You'd think you'd get a few good ideas. Yeah. Mm. No, that is, it's shocking. I did know it, but I was shocked when I found out. It's crazy. Because I think as well as sometimes when you actually think these artists and musicians are so good, you just automatically, like you paint a narrative in your own head. You're just like, that song's about me. (laughs) You know, like, and then you just automatically associate that with the person who's performing it. Yeah. It makes sense. Why have people constantly arguing that Beyonce sucks because she collaborates on songs? Yeah, but she's a part of the creation, isn't she? Like. They're like, she didn't even write that song. I was like, well, she did. She wrote it with a team of people. But and that makes sense. Lennon McCartney, like, you know, at least collaboration. Was fucking is involved. Key. Elvis didn't write a single fucking song. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so shut up and leave Beyonce. <laughs> leave her alone. <laughs> Whoever you are, I can't remember your name, but you know who you are, you fucking asshole. <laughs> all right. So while Elvis was making all these shitty, crappy movies, the music world was going through another amazing growth period with the Beatles and my mate Bobby D. Mm, Bobby um, D. And because they wrote their own music, they had control over their careers. Yeah. Um, with Elvis, the colonel was the guy who found him songs to sing. He was super dependent on the colonel. And it must have really sucked. He totally lost his connection to music. He married Priscilla in 1967 and then in 1968 as a new father to little Lisa Marie um, and his new massive sideburns, Elvis (laughs) staged a comeback with a TV special. There was a lot of anticipation and Priscilla hadn't ever seen him before, live before, ever. That's how many shitty movies he'd been making. Um, And they'd been together since what was that, fucking 55? Yeah. 58, something. Anyway, that's a long fucking time. She'd never seen him. And the TV special was a big hit. He's back with his old band, Loving It Sick. He only had a couple of movies left on his contract and after that he was donezo with the films. Mm. So after that he gets back into music, releasing all that funny older Elvis sideburns music like Suspicious Minds and In the Ghetto, which were massive hits, but not my faves. Weird music, I think. <laughs> sideburns music. Suspicious Minds. <laughs> In 1969, without any more movie contracts coming in, the colonel got him playing Las Vegas hotels. Mm. And the audiences for this show, (laughs) (laughs) there were older people and I guess by this stage his original audience. Yeah. Grown up a bit. Hitting those slots. And his shows were real big with jumpsuits and lights and a big band and big sideburns. Rhinestones. Shows go on forever and ever. And he just like doesn't leave the hotel, barely ever sees daylight, two shows a day. Holy moly. And the colonel could tell that he was getting super wiped from doing all these shows. So. He didn't give a shit? (laughs) Well, he's like, he's going to die or something. Okay. Is he still on the uppers at that point? Oh, yeah, and downers too now. Well, you, um, know, you can't have one without the other. No, how are you going to come Hunter down? You're going to have sleep sometime. So he gets him out of the hotels and takes him and his sideburns out on the road touring. He did something like 300 concerts in three years. Whoa. It's a lot, huh? Yeah. And this is a, just a funny little tidbit. Um 
In December 1970, Elvis got himself a meeting with the then current president, Richard Nixon. Elvis told Nixon all about what a great patriot he was and how he wanted to reach out to the hippies to help combat the illegal drug culture that him and Nixon both you know, equally despised. And apparently Nixon... Elvis, you're on drugs. <laughs> but, you know, they're prescription drugs. Yeah. Apparently Nixon found the whole thing pretty awkward, especially when Elvis asked for a bureau... Asked for a Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs badge. Oh, my God. Which he actually gave him. There's a great Drunk History episode. About yes. That. That's it. Yeah. Um, it was also at this meeting that Elvis told Nixon that the Beatles represented what he saw as a trend of anti-Americanism. Awkwardly, okay. Elvis has had awkwardly Elvis had had a four-hour get-together with the Beatles at his home in California in '65, so five years earlier. But yeah, I, you know they were probably mates. When I um, went to Liverpool that time to do my Beatles pilgrimage. They had like the regular Beatles Museum, but the special exhibition at the time was Elvis meeting the Beatles. There was a whole really? exhibition about the entire thing. How, how they hung out. Yeah. And the clothes they wore and the, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Well, when Paul McCartney heard about all this, he later said that he felt a bit betrayed. And quote, the great joke was that we were all taking illegal drugs and look what happened to him. <laughs> In reference to Elvis's early death linked to prescription drugs. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Good good call, I guess. Yeah. Dark but true. Yeah. Um, So despite all that mega touring, he never toured outside of the USA. Really? And this is definitely because the colonel couldn't leave the US. (gasps) He had a lied to Elvis and absolutely everyone about being a U.S. citizen. He was actually Dutch. What? So if he left America, he wouldn't be able to get back in. And he just kept that from everybody. Whoa. I always imagine, like, the Colonel, I'm imagining KFC, I imagine Colonel Sanders, (laughs) and, like, I imagine him wearing, like, a big Texas hat, you know, because he's got a a big big load of cattle. Well, I think he did do that. But he's Dutch. Yeah. and I, A bong and a blitz. I always remember thinking, like, I knew that he had never toured outside the States, but for, I thought that for some reason it was because Elvis refused to travel without his guns. Oh, my God. But that is not the that case. That wouldn't even be far-fetched. Though. He was desperate to tour overseas, um, but Parker just couldn't let anyone know his little secret. That's wild. They could have made so much more money as well, which obviously... Yeah. It, well, by the sign of things, is Colonel's jam. Yeah, well, he geniusly comes up with this idea of a live simulcast show mm. all over the world, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty smart to be like, hey, you don't even need to go, Elvis. Yeah. Was um, it in Hawaii? Yeah, yeah, Aloha from Hawaii. Um, and it's sort <laughs> of, it cements him as this massive, massive icon. Like no one had ever had the fame to pull off something like that. Mm. And I don't think anyone since has either. Even in the time of streaming, there's nothing like it that that many people of different age groups would tune in and watch. I don't know if you're going to say this, but I went to Graceland 
and I'm relatively certain this was quite some time ago, but that I read that more people tuned into that than they did for the moon landing. Yeah. I wasn't going to say that, but okay, I yeah, did yeah. read that the yeah. other day. Yeah, it's Which pretty is intense. Bananas. Someone's <laughs> like people going into space <laughs> on a space mission. But wait a second, let's see that pelvis, Elvis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so despite this, Elvis did still really want to travel overseas. He was fucking, at this point, Elvis was sick of the colonel. He was on a bunch of prescription drugs. He was still desperate to travel the world and Parker would not have it. But because of all the drugs, he was just getting pretty shit at performing. His marriage ended, more on that later. He put on weight. His sideburns continued to grow and take over his whole face. (laughs) He was off chops. (laughs) Sideburns. See what I did there? Uh, he, He keeps playing... Shows usually two a day and he's depressed. He takes speed to get the energy to do the show, Mm. then pills to sleep again after. In 1973, he overdosed on barbiturates twice and towards the end of that year he was hospitalised semi-comatose from the effects of his pethidine addiction. And I've had that. It's great stuff. But I had a smashed face at the time, so. Oh, so it's it's a pain medication, pethidine? Yeah, it's kind of... One step down from morphine. Yeah, okay. But much stronger than codeine. When you ta- is it a pill form? No, it's an injected. Okay, so you'd be in a hospital if you were taking it like legit. Yeah. Um, according to his doctor, um, quote, Presley felt that by getting drugs from a doctor, he wasn't the common everyday junkie getting something off the street. Mm. And despite all his health troubles, he just kept on touring. His guitarist at that time, John Wilkinson, recalled, quote, he was all gut, he was slurring, he was so fucked up. It was obvious he was drugged. It was obvious there was something terribly wrong with his body. Mm. It was so bad, the words to the songs were barely intelligible. I remember crying. He could barely get through the introductions. I watched him in his dressing room just draped over a chair, unable to move. So often I thought, boss, why don't you just cancel this tour and take a year off? I mentioned something once in a guarded moment. He patted me on the back and said, it'll be all right. Don't you worry about it. That was so good, Amber Jones. (laughs) (laughs) My, My impression. Yes. Thank you. I mean, the story's fucking heartbreaking. It's so but sad. Your impression, fucking point. Now, the last days of his life, year or so of his life, were pretty awful. He doesn't speak to his dad anymore. His mum's dead. He's divorced. He was pretty much all alone. And those last shows were a testament to how bad things were. He was fucked. And I'm sure that everyone's seen those pictures of the near the end Elvis or sweaty and bloated and. It's horrible. Mm. Anyway, on August 16th, 1977, he came home for a short break and he bloody died at the frighteningly young age of 42. Yeah. On the toilet. Yeah. I used to think that that was sort of funny, but I'm not so sure anymore. It's not funny. It's fucking awful. Yeah. It's very sad. Elvis changed the world. He was the epitome of the American dream, working his way up from extreme poverty to wealth and fame. 
He's the best-selling solo artist of all time. And as a young man, his face was fucking perfection. Mm, I agree. So, Kara, tell me, why do you love Elvis so much? I think it's really interesting. I did not know the extent of his, like, um, upbringing and, and, like, socioeconomic standing, like, how poor they were. Um, So, yeah, I guess to see... Where he went, like you said, is that is the American dream mm. right there from start to finish. Well, not to finish. Uh, but I grew up <laughs> with his music, like, you know, in my house all the time. So I think I have really strong memories of listening to his music with my family. Um as you mentioned, he's incredibly handsome. And also, as we've all learned, if you've listened to previous episodes, I am pretty superficial when it comes to these people. <laughs> and he's very, very beautiful. He has, like, perfect pitch, I believe, which I always thought was like, wow, like, what an amazing gift to have because mm. I most certainly don't have perfect pitch. <laughs> um, I... Like, yeah, I do love his music. I love the song Surrender, but it's so rapey. Yeah, gross. And I, but I sing, I, <laughs> I, that's like a song that I just belt so hard. Um, yeah, and like, okay, so uh, my, my beautiful friend Lou and I, the first time, the first iteration of our American road trip, we were like planning it all out. And then she was like, oh, yeah, I've, like, always, always wanted to go to Memphis to go to Graceland. And I was like, we lived together. We worked together. I never knew this about you. <laughs> like, I had no clue. And then, yeah, so then we drove from New York to Memphis, Tennessee, and we went to Graceland. And it was really interesting. Like, when you go there, it is it is grand, but it's so much smaller than what you think yeah, it's, it's going to be. Yeah, that much of a massive psychotic no. mansion. If you think about, I don't know. He bought it for his parents. Yeah. that. Well, that's the thing. And I mean, like, I know that that relationship was a bit weird, but he did really give back to his parents and look after them for a long time. Yeah. I think they're all buried on the property. I'm, yeah, he definitely is. But I think his mum and his dad are next to him, like, at the back. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was really interesting to go and see Graceland and also, like you said about Beale Street and just Memphis is a really interesting place. Oh, and Martin Luther King Jr. was shot there as well. I mean, it was, it was a really fascinating place to go and I think that I liked him a lot more after I visited there. Also just finding out that one of my closest friends is like, that was her mission in life. I was like... (laughs) We're going to Graceland. I'm going to get that for you. I'm going to fucking go there. And I drove across nine states in four days. But, like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I just, I do think his music is great and for me it's timeless as well. Yeah. And I do feel sorry for him, like, a lot. Yeah. Well, I didn't before but now I do. I think that Colonel Cunt is, <laughs> I just think he was, like, such a manipulator. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. He's and a villain. He is a villain, but yeah. maybe we should. Anyway, let me. I'll tell leave you. that to you. <laughs> I'll tell you what Elvis did that's bad. Yeah, we should do that too. Um, and as usual, I'm going to get into his private life, mm. which is usually where men fuck it all up. Truth. Um, so, as I mentioned before, he started dating Priscilla when she was 14 yep. years old. 
He was 24. So gross. In her book, Priscilla says that Elvis did everything short of penetrative sex with her that first night. Oh. And they continued this relationship until they were married. He appeared to be obsessed with virginity. Before Priscilla, while on tour, it's alleged that he kept a group of three 14-year-old girls with him and they would pillow fight, tickle and wrestle and kiss Elvis, who was 22 at that point. Gross. He also had a 14-year-old girlfriend in Dixie Lock when he was 19. What the fuck is Dixie Lock? What is it? Is it a place? Oh, that's her name. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought you said in a... I thought oh, said, no. <laughs> it was just like fancy writing, fancy word writing. Sorry, Dixie Locke, well. Um, Priscilla wrote in her <laughs> memoir that Elvis, quote, had mentioned to me before we were married that he had never been able to make love to a woman who'd had a child. And after she gave birth to Lisa Marie, Elvis all stopped but like pretty much stopped fucking her. So weird and fucked up. And I wonder if it's some kind of like mother psychological fucking weird. So fucked up. Yeah. According fucking wife, you weirdo. <laughs> so weird. According to one of Elvis's bodyguards, Alan Fortas, quote, this is a good quote. It's hectic. Elvis needed someone to baby more than he needed a sex partner. He craved the attention of someone who adored him without the threat of sexual pressure, much as a mother would. Elvis befriended some of the young girls who used to cluster adoringly in his driveway or outside the fence. Some of the girls were as young as 14. He goes on to say that these teenagers were regular house guests and attended concerts as part of Elvis's personal travelling show. They swam in the pool with him, challenged him to watermelon seed spitting contests, Gosh. and he also says that they slipped into his bedroom for boisterous pillow fights and would often lie down and cuddle together. It's very off-putting. So weird. Doesn't really sit well. In Alana Nash's book called Baby Let's Play House, Elvis Presley and the Woman Who Loved Him, Nash talks about the need in Presley to play father to very young women. She calls him a late blooming mama's boy. Oh. <laughs> and she says that young Elvis was a flop with the girls and super religious and he also had this mad, insane fear of STDs. So that look, he, it's not unfounded. One in three yeah. people wear a condom, but he wouldn't. <laughs> so far, he went with this that he wouldn't actually go inside women. Never undressed, and was more into watching elaborate taboo, taboo, and often involving feet. What? Ah. <laughs> in Tracy McVeigh's book called Elvis Special, she claims, quote, that he adored to fondle and suck women's toes and those in his entourage were given the job of choosing companions for him would often be asked to check the girl's feet. Interesting. And anyway, I'm not 
That's not a king shame, no. No, no, I never knew that. Suck all the toes you want, but it's probably a good idea if the toes belong to a fully grown woman, not a teenage girl. (laughs) That's true. Um, And back to Priscilla. Um, So they stayed married for a few years, but Elvis was gone a lot and she wasn't allowed to visit him on tour. Mm. She's home with the fucking baby and she got jack of it and started an affair with her karate instructor. But don't feel too bad for Elvis here. He was having plenty of affairs of his own with, like, movie stars and stuff. And people's feet. And teenage girls apparently. Yeah. when Priscilla went to Elvis's Vegas hotel room to tell him about the affair that she was having and that she was going to leave him, and this was in her autobiography, Elvis, quote, grabbed and forcefully made love to her, declaring well, that's rape. this is how a real man makes love to his woman. Oh, my God. Yeah, so he raped her. But yeah, like she later it wouldn't said, have been considered rape at that point because you can't rape your wife. Well, she later then. said she regretted her description of the event and said it had been an exaggeration. But like, mm. well, I mean, you're so this was in her autobiography, right? Mm. It's not that like you write an autobiography and being, you know. Boom, it's in Dimmicks. It's like there are a lot of people who write, who edit, who go through mm-hmm. that. That particular part of that book would have been scrutinised totally. and discussed a lot. It's a big thing to yeah, say. before it goes to print. Well, she also said when she said that she regretted her description, she said what really hurt was that he was not sensitive to me as a woman and his attempt at reconciliation had come too late. I don't think that was an attempt at reconciliation. No. I think that was an attempt at like controlling the situation Fuck and taking yeah. a hold of it, taking power because from you her, you she then felt power exactly. Yeah. It's a fucking power plate. That's what it is. It's wrong. Yeah, poor Priscilla. I could go on and on about shit about her. There's so much in the way that he like chose what she should wear and like. Told her how to speak to people and it's real creepy. And she felt like after they broke up, like that she just didn't know who she was because she. Well, she was fucking 14. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know who I was. Like imagine, imagine that. It's so intense. How much growing and like. That you do between 14 yeah, exactly. and 25 or whatever. And. and j- j- just figuring out who you are, those are very formative years. And to be in a relationship with someone who is like this God mm. amongst men at that age, that's fright. I mean, like, no wonder. Yeah. After Priscilla, he had a few girlfriends, but his last girlfriend, Ginger Olden, um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about her. Elvis had met her when she was five years old and he'd just returned from Germany. Then 15 years later they get together. She actually was the one who found him when he died. Mm. Um, Ginger tells a lot of crazy stories because she's there in the end. Yeah. He's at his worst. Yeah. Um, about how one time she questioned his binge eating and said that she didn't think he needed to eat any more yogurt Um, and he was pretty pissed off but they both went to sleep and then she woke up to Elvis firing a 57 Magnum pistol at the bedhead where she was asleep. That's pretty scary. Elvis called this event 
quote, an attention getter. Okay. (laughs) That's pretty fucking scary. She also talks about a time, oh, she also talks about Elvis firing guns at televisions. Yeah, I knew about that one. Yeah, and once ran out of the house with a machine gun. No. Because he'd looked out the window and seen a little boy chasing Lisa Marie with a toy gun. Okay. Now, just as a sidebar, there is absolutely no need for anyone to have a machine gun. At that is No, it's fucking mental. Yeah. Mental. Also, if you're shooting a bedhead and television, you probably shouldn't have something that can literally kill I don't know how many people in one fell swoop. so bad. Jeez. All right. So I'm going to move on to the racism stuff. I think. Oh. Well, I think I first heard that Elvis was a racist from the one and only Chuck D from Public Enemy. Um, in Fight the Power, he says, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. Straight up racist, that sucker was, simple and plain. Blah, blah, blah. He goes on a bit, but that's basically the gist the of it. The sentiment. Um, and I think I just took that as like a fact. It's like if Chuck D says it, it's going to be <laughs> true. I'm not going to argue with him. You wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> and when you look back at the way that Elvis profited so, so, so much from reproducing black music at a mm. time where black musicians were very rarely credited for their work, let alone fucking paid for it. Yeah. I kind of was like, yeah, he's right. Um, and sometime in 1957, a rumour spread about how Elvis had said, and I'm quoting here, the only thing Negroes can do for me is buy my records and shine my shoes. Nice. Which is pretty fucking terrible. That's disgusting. Now, though, wait, because this guy called Louis Robinson, he was a journalist with the African-American weekly magazine called Jet. He decided that he wanted to know the truth mm-hmm. because... Other things he'd heard were that there was an, that Elvis was absolutely not a racist. Okay. So he arranged an interview with Elvis, who it should also be stated that at that time was not doing interviews like this. He would only ever do a press release or a press conference. He didn't do interviews with people. Um, and in that interview, Elvis said, quote, I never said anything like that, and people who know me know that I would not have said it. A lot of people seem to think I started this business, but rock and roll was here a long time before I came along. Nobody can sing that kind of music like coloured people. Let's face it, I can't sing like Fats Domino can. I know that. Apparently Robinson dove pretty deep into trying to figure this shit out. Yeah. Um, And he never found any evidence whatsoever that Elvis was racist in any way. I wonder who, like, who has misquoted him then. I think it was possibly just, like, a weird rumour that was started. Yeah, right. Because he went, he followed, he spoke to so many people, Mm. um, people that had worked with him, People from that time when articles were being read and written, he didn't ever find it in print anywhere. Yeah. It was just something people said he said. And, you know, in actual fact, Elvis very vocally acknowledged his debt to African-American musicians and he did so all throughout his career. 
In his 68 comeback special, he said, quote, rock and roll is basically gospel or rhythm and blues, or it sprang from that. People have been adding to it, adding instruments to it, experimenting with it, but it all boils down to that. It's black music. And nine years earlier, he'd said, rock and roll's been around for many years. It used to be called rhythm and blues. Okay. Um, the idea that Elvis is racist lives on, though, um, in a great article by this writer called Helen Kolawol in The Guardian, she suggests, uh, and I'm just going to quote, but she says, Chuck D's attack was not aimed at Elvis the person but Elvis the institution. Mm. And I can see that, absolutely. Some writers claim that without Elvis, black music would have stayed segregated but um, Kowali argues that black music never stays underground. White people always seek it out, dilute it, and eventually claim it as their own. <laughs> well, and that's all I got. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely like him less. <laughs> yeah. But I, I feel like I'm an easy target. I already. <laughs> I feel like I say that every single time. I'm like, sorry, but the situation with Priscilla is... It's rank. Yeah, and I don't care about that bullshit. It was a different time thing. She was 14 years old. He's then controls her throughout the entire relationship. And then he, he well, I, essentially he rapes her once he doesn't get his way and once he's lost his cards yeah. and the power has been taken away from him. Um, fuck that. It's really gross. And I also, I do feel sorry for him, though. I feel like he was, like, in this sense, because I feel like he was kind of, like, brought into this whole kind of situation with that fucking, you know, Dutch colonel. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, but then, and he was being controlled by this other person yeah. throughout his whole life, you know. So yeah. then, like, then it tr it's like a trickle-down effect. It's That's that, like, power, power, cyclical power, power. thing, yeah. isn't it? Like, he had to take back some control. Of course, like, you know, that's fucked in itself. But, like, I just... I don't know. I do feel... I feel sorry for him. And how fascinating that he didn't tour globally, like, internationally, mm. because of that. Yeah. <laughs> that's nuts! It's really sad that that's the reason Could why. It, yeah. I mean... I don't, I've learned a lot. Yeah, I've learned heaps too. But yeah, the pillow fights and stuff for the fourteen-year-old yeah, girls—it's kind of it's very off-putting. Like that's weird. And like the weird, yeah, that obsession with virginity and yeah, because virginity is bullshit stuff. Just so everyone knows, that's a construct, <laughs> <laughs> which is a fucking joke. Yeah, and it's a way of taking power over young women. That's what virginity is. Yeah. That that a man's dick can change who a woman fucking is. Oh, my God, spoiler alert. It can't. <laughs> the dick's got no power, mate. No, none. On that note, thanks for sticking around for a pretty long episode. Yeah, let's kick off season two of The Bang. Pew, pew. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll be back next week with a couple of Millennials. Millennials, yeah. You're going to love it, probably. Maybe. We'll see you soon. See ya. Bye. I'm sorry.
We have used multiple sources in the research for this podcast. All of these can be found in the show notes. This podcast was written by Kara Nissen and Amber Jones, with music and engineering by Morgan Jones. DJ Morgs! <laughs> Sorry, I like it.